Have you ever wondered about the work of equity officers and offices in PK-12 school districts and how their work could be more substantively impactful? Or have you ever thought our district needs an equity office or an officer? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, then you are in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenure professor, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of breaking bread with my dear friends and collaborators, Dr. Ann Ishimaru and Dr. Dakota J. Irby, in this first of a two-part conversation about the work that we've been doing for the past six or so years on district-level equity leadership with a specific focus on equity directors and equity offices in PK-12 districts. Dr. Annie Shamaro is a professor at the University of Washington and the author of the best-selling book, Just Schools, Building Equitable Collaborations with Families and Communities. Dr. Dakota J. Irby is an associate professor of educational policy studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago and is the author of the best-selling book, Stuck Improving Racial Equity in School Leadership. During our conversation, we talk about what equity directors are, how and why districts need to support the people in these positions and their work overall. We also discuss the importance of changing organizational conditions and power dynamics as central parts of equity leadership. Finally, we talk about thinking more expansively beyond professional development as the primary tool for equity leadership. We also break bread and talk about the importance of working right now in school districts, but also dreaming and working towards new realities and so, so much more. I am super excited for you to hear this conversation. We'll begin today with this very first part. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by www.raciallyjustschools.com. And when you join our community today, I will send you a free video on how to make your racial justice work better. I'm excited about you joining the community, and I look forward to meeting you. And if you're ready to get into today's episode, we will in one second. But first, I have a special announcer that's going to get us started. Welcome to the Racial Justice Podcast with your host, Dr. Terrence Elgrade. He's my daddy, and he's the best ever. Let's go! Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green, and I am your host. And yo, I am really super excited and full of joy and been looking forward to this particular episode for a while because I have two amazing human beings on this particular episode. Not only are they colleagues, but they are friends and people that I hold quite dear to my heart. So I am super excited that we have the one and only Dr. Ann Ishimaru on the podcast today along with Dr. Dakota J. Irby in the building. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast, y'all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Glad to be here. So glad to have you all here. Um, So for those of you who are listening to the podcast and who may not know, the three of us have been engaged in some research together for the past several years. And we thought this would be an amazing time to kind of share some of that work, given what's going on in schools and districts today. And so today we have a very special episode where 
we're going to be talking about our work around equity directors or what some people may call chief equity officers and uh, equity offices in K-12 school districts. And so to kind of bring us into this conversation, I love for each of you to kind of talk a little bit about the work you've been doing, because we've all been on uh, similar but different paths and how our work began to align around the research on equity directors. Um, well, first off, thank you so much for having us here. It's super exciting. I'm a longtime listener, so I'm excited to be on podcast. Um, well, like the work that I've been doing, um, kind of it, it evolved out of, uh, I started doing a, um, a couple of, uh, studies with a colleague, Dr. Molly Galloway, um, around equity leadership, um, and particularly around the role of teams and, and, uh, in some places they call them racial equity teams. Um, and so over a course of, um, a number of years, we followed those racial equity teams and more at the school level to kind of see, um, what they were working on and how their, work was shifting and affecting the work of educators every day. And um, one of the key factors that started to come out of that work was the role of the formal leader and the role of the district and the context that was coming out of. So um, uh, Dr. We might talk about this in a minute, but three of us um, came together um, at a convening and um, started talking about over lunch, uh, just how many um, folks that we knew from our own networks and, and students and colleagues uh, who were taking on this new role of equity director um, and trying to figure out what did we know from the research out there, who was studying these folks in these roles and how much they seem to have grown uh, in recent years. And so that was kind of the beginning of a conversation over lunch. Um, and I kind of had been thinking, oh, maybe this is just something in my area, something that's happening on the West Coast or in, in Northwest. And um, so kind of having that conversation opened the door to realizing, actually, maybe I think this is something that's happening nationally. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Ishimaru um, captured the conversation that led us to start collaborating. I think the only thing that I would add is that that conversation happened in a I can't remember if it was 2016 or 2017. Uh, and so um, this was before there was the number of equity directors and equity officers in K-12 spaces that we see today. Um, and so that initial conversation was um, about 2016 or 2017. We had that lunch conversation and started to realize that all of us knew people who were working in this really at the time, what I would argue is it was an emerging role. Um, in fact, when we initially started um, our first study, we found it quite difficult to find participants for it. Um, and so that's the only thing that I would add. But, yeah, it came by way of a conversation uh, where we were all talking about what people we knew were experiencing um, in this new role. You know, one of the things that I remember most about that conversation was that um, so many districts had spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on consultants. But they they hadn't built like the institutional capacity to do this work. And so one of the things I remember us talking about during that conversation was the kind of like the shift organizationally, because districts were like, you know, we spent all this money, but not much has changed. And so they were really trying to start to build internally what that looked like. Just like what are equity directors? Because they're known by different titles in different places, depending on what district you're in. But then, like, why is this particular role needed? And I, I feel like there's pressure on people who support equity work at times to say, well, you don't need like an equity officer or equity office because equity is the work of everyone. 
And then there are people who are just completely antithetical and trying to undermine any type of work around equity and equity offices. They're trying to dismantle it. But could, could, could we have a talk start a little bit about like, just like, what is this role in this position? And like, why are they needed in, in K-12 school districts? Yeah, I think uh, this is a great question because I think the, uh, you know, we may have all started in slightly different places around that and been in conversation and then doing the research. Um, it's really evolved over time. Um, and I'll just say, the, you know, this, we just did the, the first annual uh, equity leadership, uh, district level equity leadership uh, survey. Um, and, you know, there were 32 different titles that the folks who participated in the survey identified for this role. So that was kind of, it still reflects the kind of thing that Dr. Irby's talking about where uh, there isn't a singular title for this role. Um, it's the, it's a person who's been designated at the district level um, to tend to all the various equity work. Sometimes there's an entire office um, that's designated with significant uh, resources and staff uh, there are a number of different models, which I think maybe uh, we can talk about in a minute, uh, that, that folks have taken up for what it looks like to have someone like this. Um, and in other cases, it's a single person, and they don't necessarily have a staff or their own designated uh, uh, resources, but they work collaboratively uh, with other uh, departments, with other leadership to uh, focus the efforts of the district on different kinds of equity work. I think that captures it. You know, the first thing that came to mind uh, for me was where Dr. Ishumaru started off talking about the um, 32 different titles that we had, uh, even from a survey that was just last year, right? Uh, 2022, 2021-22 um, survey. Uh, and we had 32 different titles. And in our first study, which we started, which was a qualitative interview study, I think we had about uh, 15 participants and I think all of them had different titles. And so the title issue in terms of tightening up what the role um, is called um, and figuring out what the role is actually charged to do. Um, there's still a lot of variance across um, the different districts, even as the role continues to uh, grow in numbers. Yeah, I think that the title, the title in some ways um, the titles are telling, right? Because the title can give you kind of like a clue into kind of like how they're situated, how, you know, folks were thinking about creating the position, whether they created it in some ways proactively and preemptively to really do something, or if it was kind of like a reactionary thing that happened kind of like 2020 post George Floyd murder. Um, I think that that tells you a lot, but. And so one of the things we do know three or four years three years post 2020 is that these roles and these positions are under grave attack. Not that they weren't before, but there's been this, this massive racial backlash, particularly against the people in these roles, in these offices and against the school district, quite frankly, quite frankly, excuse me. And so I guess one of the things I would love to talk about because as people are um, part of this conversation and a lot of superintendents and school boards, particularly like how can they be thinking about this role to one, not only support people in it, but to proactively think about countering the attacks, because there are attacks that are coming and there is a cost for people in these roles, psychologically, emotionally, physically, uh, fiscally, f familially. Like so like how if you if we were talking to a group of superintendents or school board members, what might we offer them about how they might structure this position and this office so that it can support people 
um, in the work, but also proactively start to think about countering some of the attacks that come along. Yeah, I guess I can I can get I can answer this. So I think um, one of the things is for people to recognize that the attacks are on the way. Right. Um, Whether they have this position, whether they have the role or not, regardless of how long it's existed, that people are going to be resistant and that resistance is going to come in multiple different forms. It might come from uh, outside stakeholders, parent groups, but it can also come from internally within a district. Oftentimes, based on the research that we've seen from people within the district that also espouse equity agendas and equity values um, can be the people who undermine um, a lot of the work. So one of the things that I think is uh, important is that there are some people who um, say that they need an equity director uh, because equity work is important. There are some who argue that it's not, but there's also this middle group that say equity director work is important. But the equity director and a person who should be doing the work should not be there because it should be everybody's work. So there's these kind of how I see these three kind of major ways that people think about the need to support people in this role and to support the creation and maintenance of the role in and of itself. Um, but I think the, the 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 quick, easy response is to anticipate that there's going to be both internal and external resistance to this role in multiple different ways um, and to plan accordingly. And by plan according, that means to provide adequate resources, people, and importantly, to think about embedding the work into the district in a way that makes it more difficult to undo over time. Um, so, for example, that means, you know, policies, integrating it into policies, integrating equity perspectives into how you look at data, integrating it into the day to day practices that you see at school. And so what I've observed is that it's easier for folks to come at one person. It's much more difficult to come at and untangle all the kind of like in ways that equity is embedded into a particular system. And so um, and we can talk a little bit about our research and what we're finding preliminarily. Um, and some of our sites in terms of what it looks like for that to kind of fall apart and how integrated the equity efforts really need to be uh, into all different facets of the district's work. Yeah, I would just add, uh, like, especially in this moment, uh, this this has been true from the beginning when we were we started studying uh, the equity directors in 2000, whatever that was, 16 or so, 16 or 17. Um, but the dynamics, we know that um, uh, a larger proportion of equity directors or the folks in these roles are occupied by black women and other women of color. And so the, we know that the organizational dynamics within a district um, are uh, often uh, operating in such a way as that their leadership is constrained or undermined. Um, but, and then we know that these broader dynamics are happening uh, that are happening district-wide, but also uh, coming from outside district as well. And so I think one of the things that uh, we have found in our in our research is, you know, we've, we sometimes have these uh, thought pieces or suggestions or ideas about like uh, individuals doing, uh, you know, mindfulness practice and yoga and things like that, which I think are really important. And I think we also have to recognize that there are these broader dynamics. Um, And so really thinking about moving coalitionally and leading coalitionally. uh, So whether that's within your own district, uh, working to to build those kind of coalitions and and walk alongside 
folks, uh, young people themselves, families and communities. But also we know that there are beginning to be some networks for folks who are in this role and connecting with other equity directors outside of your own district um, and hearing about some of the strategies and approaches that they're taking up um, has also um, been a really important um, supporting factor, I think, for the folks who are doing this work. You know, as you as you mentioned, you know, the strategies piece, I'm just reminded back of, you know, things we know somewhat anecdotally, but also empirically that, you know, one of the primary strategies that, you know, equity directors have taken up. And I think equity work across the board, um, there is a strong pattern around professional learning and professional development. And I think we've talked about this several times. There is this um, I was listening to something the other day. This researcher called it the. information action fallacy. So it's like, you know, if I get the information, then the information is going to lead to like this causal action. And we've talked about yes. like, they've got the inoculation. <laughs> like I did my, right. my full professional development. So now I'm I'm racially just or anti-racist or whatever it may be. But can, can we talk a little bit about um, thinking and, and reimagining this work uh, beyond uh, professional learning and professional development. And one of the things that I've always admired about b- both of you all's work is that it's, it's, it's like the learning that ensues within the doing, right? And, it's, and I think sometimes it's easy to, uh, and I think the conversations are important. <laughs> like you, you need to have a yeah. conversation. But if the work ends and begins with the conversation, then the system of colonization of white supremacy, of anti-Blackness, it is just solidified in place. So could we talk about, you know, what might it look like? How might um, equity directors and people doing equity work reimagine doing this work coalitionally, like you just mentioned, Dr. Ishimaru, or um, more strategically in some ways you mentioned earlier, uh, Dr. Irby, that thinks beyond professional learning and development? Yeah, well, I could jump in. I mean, I I like how you talked about the... uh the fallacy or what I can't remember the exact language that you use, but I think that's right on point. Um, you know, I'm a big person where I think a lot about changing conditions, right? So I'm really big on if you can change the conditions of a particular setting and can change the conditions that people work in and that people lead within that people learn within that you get different outcomes. Um, and a lot of times people think so much about um, focusing on individuals behaviors as opposed to thinking about, um, or in addition to thinking about how to actually begin to modify and change the conditions in which people actually like operate. Um, you know, one of the examples that I like to give folks all the time is that you can create, um, you know, I give a con- I give a concrete example at my local park, uh, last year we worked to bring, um, have our baseball diamonds refurbished a year ago, this time, uh, especially since it's been raining, it would have been like a small lake and like it was so much mud on the baseball diamond that like, you know, geese would come down and hang out on the baseball diamond. Um, so it was just the conditions weren't what they needed to be. Um, so we didn't work to necessarily get people to want to play baseball necessarily. We focused on changing the conditions. So we worked with um, Cubs charities here in Chicago to bring a grant. They refurbished our diamonds. We have two beautiful diamonds now. The conditions are different. We didn't ask. We didn't have to encourage people to do anything. Now that the conditions are different, people are out there every day playing kickball, baseball. You know, people are reaching out, asking about using it. And so the park feels and looks totally different than it did even a year ago 
because we didn't say, hey, we want you all to get more active and get involved. Instead, we changed the conditions. And by changing the conditions, it changed the way people interacted and engaged in the space. So I'm very big on that in terms of like leadership and thinking about what equity leadership looks like is placing an emphasis on changing the conditions of the organization and the systems that people actually work and collaborate within. These are also things that I talk about extensively in my book, Stuck Improving. And um, but I think that uh, what I try to put forth in that book and what I try to argue um, in terms of thinking about how to create more anti-racist, equity oriented spaces for black and brown children is to think about what we can do as leaders to change the conditions. Of this. I think that I think that's one of the things that kind of uh, you know I think that there's a there are a lot of folks out there increasingly more I, I shouldn't say a lot like the, like when we first started our conversations that group of scholars has only grown um, but one of the things that I, I think I've always really appreciated and was drawn to both of your work about is I think we share a sensibility around wanting to make sure that that equity work is going beyond individuals and it's going beyond the hearts and minds kinds of things. And that's what so much, you know, some of the my prior work I did really uh, I started to notice how we had a set of assumptions or logics that were playing out even in equity work. Um, and that's where that professional learning and the professional development, it's not to say that the professional development isn't important. That's going to, you know, that's going to be important part there, but part of the kind of underlying logic of a lot of the professional learning at the time uh, was if we just get folks to understand these different concepts, if we understand about oppression, if we understand about history and colonization, we understand about white supremacy, um, then everything will be different because everyone will have this awareness and will change their behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that's that kind of fallacy. And, and part of the tension in there in terms of the work that I've done prior is just noticing that this, idea of like, we got to, we got to change hearts and minds and people wanted to actually change some of those conditions or some policies or some actual practices often hit up against this barrier. People say, no, 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 we got to, we really got to change hearts and minds first before we can do that. Because otherwise that's this, those other kinds of changes are going to create damage or whatever, that kind of thing. And, you know, I think the, the troubling of that is, well, whose hearts and minds are we trying to change? <laughs> and, you know, I think the un, kind of unspoken part of that often is it's it's white educators, white parents, their hearts and minds. Uh, but also, like, what does it take to, to change someone's hearts and mind at a really deep level? And so, you know, I think that that's also like taking a kind of organizational approach and thinking about how do we change the conditions? Um, and then how do we change practices? How do we change our interactions through the work? of making change. And so whatever it is, and some of the work that I've done um, uh, in terms of uh, fostering equitable forms of collaboration and co-design is really about taking something, whether it's a policy, taking a decision, um, and really thinking about how do we reshape the way this decision takes place? Who gets to be at the table? How are we going to make the decision? How's the power play out? And, you know, we're going to come to probably a slightly different kind of decision. But in the process, by doing that work, we're also shifting the norms for the way that we uh, undertake that kind of activity. And so it's kind of like what uh, Dakota was talking about in terms of those, the organizational conditions. Yes, that some of them are structural um, and having the, the kind of time and space. And some of them are also relational interactional about how we interact with people, how we assume who has expertise, how the power plays out in these everyday contexts, then shapes 
how these broader systems, um, decisions and outcomes come to be. Mm-hmm. And That's- do you mind if it, is, is that that stuff that you write about in just schools? So could you talk a little bit more about how uh, parents play into that? I'm, I'm curious how you yeah, how yeah. parents, how your work around parenting that you write about in just schools intersects with the equity work that you're describing now. Thank you, Dakota. <laughs> He's like, talk about your book. Um, yeah, well, so, you know, especially um, Black, Indigenous, other other parents and uh, caregivers of color um, have this expertise that we, we generally don't tap. Also, young people themselves about their own lives, their own learning. And so, you know, I think we have, especially for formal leaders in schools, a kind of uh, notion about, uh, you know, who's supposed to make decisions and how they're supposed to be made, who's supposed to know about teaching and learning. And those assumptions, just like the hearts and minds one, um, they kind of govern what feels like an appropriate thing to involve someone in, an appropriate conversation to have. Um, And so often there's a kind of assumption that the the families of black and brown kids um, are either, they, they don't know uh, about teaching and learning or about schools, or they don't, um, they don't care is the kind of uh, racialized assumption. Those are the, I talk about those as institutionalized scripts. Um, And that's a really problematic assumption. And it's actually reinforcing the problem uh, in the work that I've done. I can see that. So really trying to think about what is the, not just sort of theoretically, we have a lot of sort of, let's take an asset-based approach, which I appreciate. And just sort of like turning our lens is often insufficient, right? So really trying to think about how do we, um, take on an, uh, like say hiring, so you, like principals and teachers have to get hired all the time in schools and districts. And so we, we often, the, the typical approach is maybe there will be maybe one parent on a panel, uh, that, you know, like an interview mm-hmm. panel and it's just making, and that's sort of like the, um, uh, you know, more generous kind of approach or more equitable kind of approach. Um, and instead thinking about like, what does it look like to reshape that process so that young people themselves, so that families, especially those who've been marginalized by our systems, um, are able to articulate not just what is it they, they want, uh, but they can actually create questions, they can interview candidates and be part of the decision-making process. So that's just one example. Um, and it's pretty counter to the way that schools tend to work. Um, and, it, and it does take time and effort. And if we actually really want to foster justice in our educational systems, um, then we got to work some different ways. I love it. And I want to say this, y'all, please go out. You know, I recommend these wholeheartedly. So please go out and pick up both Stuck Improving by Dakota J. Irby and Just Schools, Equitable Collab- Building Equitable Collaborations with Families and Communities um, by Anne Ishimaru, both powerful books that I use in the courses that I teach. And as you all are talking about um, this, you're making me think of a couple of things. So one is like, there's this idea, Dakota, you started talking about conditions, but it seems like a lot of our work has been focused on conditioning, right? So it's like what you're saying, and like shifting people's conditioning, but it sounds like if we start to shift the conditions, the dynamics of power, um, how decisions are made, that, that shifting the conditions in and of themselves will, will engender a different type of condition it, it can create room for a different type of conditioning and how people come to understand the world and what they're doing as they practice. But one of the things that you lifted up, I hear kind of y'all lifting up is this, the shifting of the dynamics of power. 
And I think a lot of times when we talk about equity, when we talk about diversity, when we talk about justice, even when we talk about anti-racism, we talk about these notions void of power, relationships of power, distribution of power, distribution of resource. But could you all talk a little bit about the role of, of, of shifting power dynamics and thinking about what how that could be very pivotal to the work that an equity director, equity directors, equity leaders um, do across a district. And that's one thing that we did talk about, just making sure like we're thinking about this work beyond an individual, right? So we're thinking about the collective and thinking about um, leadership broadly beyond one individual. But could you just talk about the importance of shifting dynamics of power in this work and how equity folks may think about starting to do that um, within their districts? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think is fascinating um, that I really appreciate about the research that we've been doing is that we actually have been seeing the equity directors themselves do the work of actually creating and shifting power in their districts. And it's one of the things that I have appreciated most. And so, for example, you have equity directors advocating, for example, to create an office where office didn't exist before, which changes the conditions in the district. Um, and how that looks, looks different kind of ways. Um, equity directors are actively pursuing financial resources to supplement what districts offer. I would love to see equity directors playing a more active role in terms of like being engaged in the processes of getting more funding as opposed to just getting it from philanthropic dollars. Um, and so I think that w- some of the ways that I've seen them do that work is early on, the uh, equity directors were more likely to be lower within the organization. So, for example, they wouldn't be on a superintendent's cabinet. They might be a specialist. Right. Um, it might be someone in the district who um, kind of is appointed to work as like a community li- liaison. So they're in the office of community and family engagement. And what we've seen over time is that the uh, people in uh, these positions have used their creativity, used their cultural and racial um, knowledge to um, advocate for and advance their districts in a way that creates a new sets of conditions by, for example, consolidating programs, um, sharing uh, resources and, you know, getting more, uh, you know, staff, getting a larger staff. Um, so all of these things, I think, are like really important influence. A big one is influence in policy decision making that happens in the district and actually revising policies. So there's these ways that folks are um, exercising power and moving in ways that actually like build and establish new conditions in their districts. Um, and so those are some of the ways that I've thought about it. Early on, people were lower. We're starting to see more people who now are like have the chief title, more people who are sitting in on uh, sitting in the superintendent's cabinet. Some of the equity directors are now called superintendent. They have superintendent in their title, so on and so forth. And so they're put being put on a more uh, equal playing field with people, for example, who are um, like superintendents of instruction and superintendents over curriculum instruction. And that gives them some influence over those particular offices. So. Um, Although we haven't written about this yet, I think one of the cool things that we've observed um, in doing our research since, you know, like I said, about 2017 is seeing the ways that equity directors have actually reshaped um, the conditions by advocating um, within their own districts. Terrence, I want to hear what you are. Yeah, what you're thinking about. What would you add to that? You know, one of the things my colleague here, uh, Anthony Brown, always says is that um, inclusion is the one of the greatest forms of exclusion. 
And so one of the things he's he's trying to say is that um, the way I take it and think about what we're talking about here is that does the, the actual creation of this role create the dynamic for the district such that it can it can it can absorb the creation of the, the role? They can absorb that hit, if you will. And so the district can improve and become more equitable, but the district never becomes something different. Right. And so this role, I'm just I'm wondering, does equity work push the districts towards being more equitable and limit it in becoming something significantly different? Right. Something significantly different to where the conditions to which we were just talking about before is the default setting. The conditions of how you were just saying before, Ann, about how you hire and, and who's making the decisions on that in curriculum, like like that becomes like the default setting and something that is completely different from what we have. And so as I'm thinking about power, I don't know. I'm wondering how I'm 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 wondering how do people continue to navigate and function in the existing conditions of power and simultaneously think about tapping into another source of power that can build something instead of what we currently have. And I think part of that building, yes, it is imaginative. It is coalition building, like you were saying. I think it is beginning to practice, which is, I think, why we have always appreciated the prefigurative work is like beginning to practice now that which you want to practice in kind of like the ideal. But I think of power functioning in both of those, what we have now, but thinking about how do we get it to the ideal. And I think practically, because I know somebody else in an email, like, what does that mean practically? I think practically <laughs> what you just said earlier about how decisions are made, who makes the decisions um, around everything, curriculum, instruction. Uh, how we collaborate with families, uh, the whole nine. So that's kind of what's percolating in my mind right now. Yeah, I love that. That's that's one of the tensions that I think we regularly grapple with, both and, mm-hmm. you know, and I just like, uh, you know, Black Feminists and Bell Hooks and those folks are always like, we're, 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 we got to do the both and. Yes, there are these immediate kind of things there and they're immediate you know, I think there are some folks out there who's like, that's all we, that's all we going to do. We're like, let's, let's like, let's just throw away the system that we have. Cause it's just, a, it's a, it's a hot mess. It was never designed to actually educate all the children um, that we're trying to educate right now. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel that I, I understand that perspective and there's tangible, right. Immediate um, uh, issues and and harm that's happening to to young people right here and now mm-hmm. and so um i think we got to we got to figure out how to do both simultaneously um that said there's also you know i was thinking a lot about somebody was talking about all that's going on with anti crt and all that kind of stuff and and i just keep coming back to this idea that i think mark gooden and some other folks talked about this idea of of um orchestrated distraction um and how much it's functioning to mm-hmm. You know, like you're getting attacked. So it's not like you can just be like, I'm I'm just going to ignore it. But also to just see and recognize that it's very in there's a very um, intentional way that is drawing attention and energies and focus and work um, away from the kinds of uh, either like the immediate sort of equity work that's happening within schools and districts right now and the kind of reimagining and the proleptic work of trying to transform 
and function in entirely different ways. And so I think we just got to keep our eye on that um, and recognize that there is something that's very uh, orchestrated about all of those attacks. Yeah, no, I mean, I just think that you always, I always appreciate you bringing up these, you know, good points in terms of, uh, you know, the equity directors and this position and these offices, like, you know, do they get co-opted, you know, as they, you know, get closer to the traditional kind of conventional sources of power that operate within districts? And it's a good question. I think this goes back to uh, Dr. Ishimaru's point about the importance of community, because even if these positions and offices um, exist, it's still important for communities, for people to still hold anybody who's in a position of leadership in a district accountable to advance an agenda that's going to benefit their children and their communities. That just boils down. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, here in Chicago, we just elected probably the most progressive mayor in the country at this point. Well, you know, the people got to keep him progressive because he in there now. Right. And uh, even when we was here at AERA um, a week ago, there was, you know, what they call, you know, the teenage teenager showing out downtown. (laughs) <laughs> and he was in a he was in a dilemma, right? Um, because it's like, what do you do? You have the world's largest educational research association conference happening, and two blocks away, young people are uh, you know, busting out windows and running across cars, right? And so, what do you do downtown at the Bean? How do you respond to that? And so, there's these very real kinds of um, dilemmas that even someone uh, like. Uh, you know, um, our mayor-elect could easily succumb to going back to the old playbook, which is what our previous mayor did. She ran on a reform agenda and then eventually reverted back to the to the old school playbook. And so the same thing happens and same thing has the potential to happen in school settings. Right. Um, I'm thinking, for example, about um, a district who reached out to me recently because they've been having a lot of fights happening with uh, their their black girls, and I'm listening to the rhetoric around rhetoric around what's happening, and it's reverting to you know zero tolerance, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And this is a district that has you know what I would consider a pretty progressive uh, superintendent, and so the question becomes: How do community members continue to hold people accountable to not fall back into what's comfortable and what's familiar in terms of trying to address a lot of the really you know substantial problems that exist within um, the schools and within a lot of school districts. I would say all school districts, there's substantial problems, especially along lines of uh, race and, and, and class and, and those sorts of things. But yeah, so you make a good point. And I think that the period that I will put on this comment is that even when these positions and these offices are created, it's still up to community members to hold the people who are in them accountable um, for creating you know, working to create the kind of conditions that's going to benefit children and communities. Well, folks, I hope you got something out of this first part. I'm super excited for you to hear the second part. So I hope you will join me when the next episode drops next week. All right. Until then, in the words of your boy, old Marty Ma, see you when I see you. Push. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, and please leave a review. We love reviews. 
And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace. I'm